welcome to Karen Fish, who we are going to have a conversation with today. It's, um, it's really lovely, actually, having you here to have this conversation. I know we've been, we've been chatting a little bit before we've pressed record, just because we had realised that we hadn't really met properly. But hello, welcome. Hello to you, Jane, and hello, Dan. Great. And um, when we say meeting, we aren't actually physically meeting. We're on a screen, which is where we live now. This is how we meet. But the last time we met you, met you in inverted commas, it also had this barrier because we were actually seeing you performing on stage. So I kind of felt like, oh, I know this person. Whereas Karen, yeah. for you, we were two faces in a large audience. But what was interesting was that it was your story that you were telling us on that stage. So it's one of the things that drew us to, to have this conversation with you, all our work being around story and this particular set of conversations being around how creative people um, think about their story and use their story in their work. So that's the kind of umbrella for all of these conversations. But let's go back to origins. Well, what I'd like to do first is get Karen to introduce herself. Hello. Yes, that's lovely. Hello. Good morning. My name is Karen Fish. Um, I'm a performer, activist, artist. I work as a drag king at the moment. And my drag king name is King Frankie Sinatra. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know what to call you, King. Frankie. No, just, just, <laughs> just, uh, no. Just Karen. <laughs> just Karen's absolutely fine, yes. <laughs> well, it's so interesting, actually, um, getting somebody to introduce themselves because how we identify ourselves, the, the, the labels that the world gives us and then the labels that we give ourselves is something that I often think about, having worn many hats and still wearing many hats. And we had performer, activist, drag king. Artist. Artist. So it would be interesting to, in some way, explore all those different identities a little bit this morning. I'm also a promoter. I forgot to add that in. So I work on both sides of the business, which is very lovely. Right, right. Which which does give a very different um, perspective on the business, the business of show, as they say. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. We you know we, we work with this idea of there are a multiplicity of stories. So you know anybody has thousands and thousands of stories. We are all made of stories. So there's you know when you said. I'm this, 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 and this, I just kind of get, well, yeah, there's multiple perspectives, multiple worlds and thousands and thousands of stories in any one of those identities and also in the place where all those identities intersect, which is really interesting. So, Karen, um, I've mentioned the word origin and, you know, it's it's... For, for any of us, there's no single origin. There's no single story or moment that has led us to where we are now. But if I was to say to you, um, what would you what would you say was an origin moment for you in your early life to to doing what you do now? What might it be? Might it be a moment of performance, a moment of rebellion? What might it be? Um, I think being kicked out of home when I was 16 and then having no further family support at the time was terrifying and, of course, tragic. 
But it also meant that no one ever told me I couldn't do something. So whatever I've ever wanted to do in my life, there's never been a parental or any other kind of figure saying no. And that has given me an enormous amount of freedom now. I look back and realize that that was a really pivotal thing and it was really good for me in, in so many ways, although it didn't necessarily feel like that at the time. Mm. Mm. And how, how soon... So you're out in the world at 16... And what happened next? What what well, was the what was what was like the the first step that you took? I got a job, which was <laughs> I was a waitress. I was a living. I was lived in a hotel as a waitress because then I had somewhere to live and I had some money. Where uh, was that? Where was that? That was in Cornwall. In Cornwall, can you can you take us there? How did you how did you walk into that job? Well, I knew the daughter's owner because we used to get on the same train to go to school. And so at some point I must have said, I need a job. And um, then they said, oh, you could come and work at the hotel. So there I was living in and working at a hotel at 16. I mean, with hindsight, it's just phenomenal, really. I was so young and I felt so grown up. And, you know, and it was looking at it through. I mean, it was great. I was a DJ as well as a waitress because I had a great knowledge of music. And I, and that was just wonderful. I mean, they were very happy days. But, you know, it was also tinged with a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress and just trying to make my way in the world, really. It's, it's hard when you're just that age. Very hard. It's interesting because you said from that moment there was um, there was nobody that could tell you not to do what what you wanted to do but there is of course yourself I mean giving yourself permission and not getting in your own way you know takes takes a great deal of courage and and determination as well I didn't really see it like that I just was a free spirit <laughs> you were and then free. I got badly into drugs you know and that was because there was a lot of a lot of loneliness there was a lot of abandonment issues mm. you know and so I did go down a very slippery slope with drugs I mean to be honest, it's a miracle I'm alive. And I say that with my hand on my heart and total gratitude because all the other people I was hanging out with are dead. And that's, wow. that's tough, mm. you know? So, yeah. Gratitude. Mm. So, so I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about music because I've got this image of you now in Cornwall as a DJ and you know, yes, you've talked about that, that, that road being really hard and you get involved in drugs. And I'm also, I'm aware that I'm talking to Frankie, the drag king. And so music clearly has been something that has, that's, uh, you know, has this kind of redemptive quality and music has always been there in your life. Um, so tell me a bit about that. Tell me about becoming a DJ and tell me about some of the songs that for you were like, I'm here. Oh, gracious me. Now you're asking. I can't remember some of the songs, really. I mean, you know, I just used to play. It was a hotel, so they had functions. So we had play at the weddings, you know, at the, at the, at the after, what is it called? The, the reception. I'd be the DJ for the reception. And, and, you know, so, yeah, I mean, whatever was was popular 
back in those days I would have played it it wasn't like I had my own like boom 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 you know (laughs) (laughs) I was just playing the charts probably (laughs) that's great gosh what that that takes me back to I heard it through the grapevine by Marvin Gaye which I remember dancing to when I was bridesmaid for my cousin in 1969 in my my long pale pink dress and I you know I was eight years old and I tore up that dance floor (laughs) fantastic it through the grapevine so but when you were talking about that 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 period of your life although you said it was tinged with lots of uh lots of other feelings that freedom um, you said it was a it was a great time. It was a great time as well. And when you think of that great time, where do you see yourself? What are you doing? What's what do you, what's in front of you? I'm in the car park of the hotel, and I'm riding on the daughter's owner's motorbike, just round and round, like oh my god, this is fantastic! <laughs> so yeah, that's when the, my love of two wheels began. <laughs> That is a great image, Karen. Thank you for giving us that. And um, that that's absolutely what brings it to life for us because um, what I see in that moment is, is everything that you've described kind of encapsulated, the freedom, the slight rebellion, um, the release, uh, trying new things. And you said that's where your love of wheels came from. Yeah, well, yeah. Tell absolutely. us tell us more. Where did that where did that take you, that love? Uh, well, I got my first motorbike for my 17th birthday. I came up to London and um, the man that was would, bought me up, I did live with him for a little while, and um, he bought me a motorbike for my 17th birthday and so I could leave. <laughs> I was like, yes, I'm out of here. <laughs> do, so, yeah. do, you re- do you remember that journey up to London? Um, not really, no. I must have got the bus, I suppose, because it was cheap. Oh, not on the bike? No, 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 no. I came, I was in the hotel, then I left there and came up to London. Got it. And um, stayed for a little while with the man who brought me up. Uh, but that wasn't where I wanted to be at all. But, um, yeah, and I got a motorbike. And have you always had a bike since then? You know what? I got rid of my motorbike about five years ago because I got a camper van. I've gone from two wheels good to four wheels bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've really settled down now. I've really settled down. Yeah, that's it. So yeah, I, I did. I had a motorbike for my entire life, and it's, it's but you know never broke anything. So hey ho, quit while you're ahead. <laughs> nice. Exactly. Exactly. And and. And so the performance, where where did the performance come from? Where where had that been? Had that been any part of your life between zero to sixteen? Singing, yeah, I was always in the school choir. I could always sing, but then then it wasn't so much. But until I suppose I was in my then you see then I got heavily into drugs and everything kind of stopped for from seventeen up until twenty four. That was a very bleak, bleak period where I did nothing really except take drugs and um, not die. Um, Mm. And then I got into performing through, I had started to learn to play the guitar when I was 18, 19. And so I'd always been, yeah, 
I'd started to learn to play the guitar, but I hadn't really been performing until my early 20s. And then I met some women. I can't remember which way round it was. I think I went to Greenham. Yeah, it must have been that way round. I went to Greenham. That's it. Yes, I went to Greenham singing around the campfire, of course, because mm. that's what you do. And then I met some women who also loved the same songs I loved. And we made a trio called Trivia and very close three-part harmonies. It was absolutely lovely. Um, mm. And then, oh, no, no. Prior to that, no, I'd done some things with my girlfriend because she was a magnificent guitar player. So, yeah. And But then I was still taking drugs, but not quite so badly i don't know it's all a bit of a blur there yeah. were drugs involved what can we say and also <laughs> this is how memory works isn't it one question and it takes you down all these branches <laughs> but but greenham take yes. us to, take us to greenham karen because um you know that's a period of my life i did i didn't go i didn't visit um i don't know what it would have been like if i had i i, I guess i was in my late teens um but it was a big uh, a big iconic idea greenham so take us there what what was it like well i first went for an um an uh, an, an action called embrace the base which was a call for women to come from everywhere because we were going to form a circle mm. around the entire nine mile perimeter fence and um and we we're going to join hands and reclaim the land and um my Friends were going and there was a space in the car. So down I went as well. And it was December the 12th, 1983, which is so wonderful because that's Frank Sinatra's birthday. Is it really? <laughs> oh, that's great. I know. When I realised December the 12th was his birthday, I was just like, well, oh, that's a really pivotal day for me. <laughs> wow. Um, so, yeah, so, yeah, we went down in the car. It was freezing cold. It was organised chaos. Nobody knew where anything was, but we managed to, well, you know, the fence was there. You couldn't miss the fence. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we did that. There were 30,000 women, and we formed a circle around that entire nine-mile perimeter fence. And in the evening, my friends went home, and I didn't. I stayed because no one's ever been able to tell me I can't do something. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I'll stay for a bit. And, um, yeah, there you go. I got myself a tent. I got a sleeping bag. And it was so cold. It was bitterly cold, but it was so alive. And I'd been incredibly lonely, which is one of the reasons I was so into drugs, because I didn't feel, you know, I was a lesbian. It was the 1980s. It was very hard to be out. Mm. You couldn't, mm. there was homophobia everywhere. You know, mm. it was such different times. And um, and then suddenly there were all these other lesbians and women who thought they might be lesbians. And they were. <laughs> <laughs> but how long were you there, Karen? Uh, I stayed there for a year and a half. I could wow. not do another winter. I did one winter and then that I couldn't I couldn't do another one. It was too much. But yeah, that was a that was that so it saved my life absolutely without a shadow of a doubt. Because I stopped taking drugs and I found my community, I found my family, and I felt like we had a common enemy and, and we had so much fun. We were just really naughty. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it is quite naughty to go to a US base <laughs> and surround it. Naughty women. Very, very, very bad behaved behavior. Yes. So how many of you 
were in the camp, you know, long term? Well, it was hard to say because there were gate. There was seven gates, and so there were camps at at least one, two, three, four of them. And so I, I couldn't give you a ballpark figure for how many were there at all the other gates, but I was at the main gate. And um, I suppose there was always at least 20 women there camped permanently. Hmm. Amazing. And, and, if, and if I was dropped into that camp and I saw you, what would you look like? What would you be wearing? What colour was your hair? My hair was brown and curly and wild. And I would be wearing the warmest clothes I had. <laughs> big jumpers, big coat, big hat, big scarf, big gloves, boots, always Dr. Martin boots. Um, yeah, black clothes because they didn't show the dirt. <laughs> what, I, what is really powerful is that idea of um, finding your tribe, finding this community mm. and what that sense of community must have been like. I mean, you first brought it up because you talked about sitting around fires and 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 singing. You know, it's it's the um it's the origin of storytelling, isn't it? Mm. Sitting around fires and sharing experiences must have been such a storytelling place that I would imagine. Yeah, there was a lot of storytelling. There was a lot of sharing. There was but it was also survival, you know. We that was very much like who's going to get the water, who's going to make the dinner, you know. There, there was all that, and of course, there was all the copping off because there was lots of young, <laughs> young lesbians having a gay old time. So, <laughs> lots of flirting, lots of coverts, you know. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Can't think of the right word, but yeah, flirting that will do. And and. So- how difficult was it in terms of the resistance that you got from presumably the people from the base who were patrolling the base or from the police? What you know, what was what was that like living with that every day for a year and a half? Well, they were in <laughs> the funny thing is we could leave and they couldn't. Yeah. And we made them very aware of that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, we made their lives incredibly miserable. We were having a far better time than they were. <laughs> that know, was their punishment to watch that was that. their punishment yeah and and the police were brutal you know there's there's no there's no there's no escaping that they were horrible to us and and the council would come and evict us on a regular basis so whatever your possessions were they would just get your possessions and throw them in a throw them in the dust cart and but that made the community so strong because you know if you were off down at Newbury having a shower or gone to the shops or whatever else you were doing, you know people would look after your stuff. It really taught me how to make a community to really look out for each other, and I think that's something that's sadly being lost now. Mm. You know, people are like, "Oh, why do you want to do that for me?" I'm like, "Well, why wouldn't I want to do that for you?" You know, it's mm. like we're human, and maybe COVID has made us feel that much more. You know, that we, we're talking to our neighbours and we're looking out for our neighbours a little bit, the more more than we ever used to. I, I'm feeling that in my neighbourhood. Mm. I don't know about other people, mm. but yeah. So there was a resistance to, you know, the, 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 more, the more they tried to overpower us, the better our resistance became. Yeah, and the more tight-knit the community came. Exactly, yes, exactly. Uh, so then where did you go? Uh, when you left Greenham, where did you go next? Uh, I came back to London and then I went to live in Amsterdam. Wow. <laughs> I only went for a fortnight. 
I stayed for two and a half years. Is this a bit of a theme? Yeah. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Oh, I like it here. I think I'll stay. Because no one ever told me I couldn't. And yeah. that was the thing. I could just do whatever I liked. And so, yeah, there we go. That's a rebel for you. Mm. <laughs> and so there's some this through line of performance, because I think um, that Jane was saying, when did you start performing and then singing came up at Green? And where did that, where does that performance through line take us to next? That's why I stayed in Amsterdam because right. I met other musicians and um, I'd been writing songs already in London with the, with the trivia, but we sang mainly covers. Uh, but then when I went to, went to Amsterdam, oh no, I'd also been busking. That was how I earned the majority of my money because I was poor. I didn't have an education. I left school really young. I hadn't done anything, you know, to make me more employable. <laughs> so I started busking on the underground, which was fantastic, because you've just got these incredible acoustics. You know, you you can't imagine how wonderful that is. It's like being in the bloody Albert Hall. You're just there <laughs> with your guitar, singing your socks off, getting money for it. And in those days, you just could. You could just go down with your guitar. There'd be somebody there. You go, oh, how long are you going to be? Be like, oh, come back in half an hour. You're like, all right, well, this is my name. Make sure you don't give it to anybody else and back you go. And then, yeah, my girlfriend would be there sometimes with the hat. And um, <laughs> and so I was always playing the guitar and singing. And then I went to live in, went to, on holiday to Amsterdam. And as I say, I thought, oh, this is really lovely. And there was a, a, um, a woman's house. It was a, a house bought by these wealthy Dutch women where any woman from anywhere could go and stay. And I, there were friends that I knew from Greenham there. So that kind of made it that I could, you know, I fitted in. That was lovely. And then I can't remember how I met the other Dutch women, but, oh, probably just in the women's, in the lesbian calf. I would imagine that's how it worked. <laughs> that would sound reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> and did you start performing with them then? I started busking with them, oh, yes, and then two of us started, but me and my, the sax player, we started playing more together, and then we made a band, and then that was, yeah, that was great. What was they, your band was called? The Romantic Bones. Hi. <laughs> and we, we wrote all our own stuff. We did a few covers, but mainly wrote our own stuff. We did covers more with busking, because that people like songs they know, and... Um, and then, yeah, we had a women's band. We played all over Holland. We did some gigs in Berlin, in other places in Germany as well, in Switzerland, in London. Yeah. And this is now the, the mid-80s? Mid-80s, yes. Mid, eight, mid to late 80s. 86, 87, 88. Yeah. Hmm. So when does drag come into come onto the stage for you? Well, when I came back to London from Amsterdam, it was early 90s, and then that was around the time that drag was just starting to get some kind of exposure in London. And um, I just, I was running, I started running clubs then because that's just how it happened. I don't know why, because I could, <laughs> like most other things. And... Um, and so I would often dress up in drag to do the door, but I wasn't, I was performing in drag, but not very much. I had a character, I was Georgie Michael, but um, that was so much facial hair. I can't, I can't tell you, it took an awfully long time to get ready. Um, 
And George <laughs> Michael would sing covers of George Michael, would he? Yes, well, I'm your man, you see, was of my course. signature tune. So there we go. That was my in. And um and that went all right. I mean, I did some stuff with a with a drag queen friend. We did we did stuff in um we went to Northern Ireland, we went to Greece, but it was very early days for um, the resurgence of drag kings. I mean, obviously drag kings have been around since the 1800s, since Vesta Tilly, but, you know, it's one of those things that comes and goes out of fashion, really. And uh, so, yeah, I did it for a little while, but quite often at the club nights, I would do the, you know, the host in drag. I was not really performing, I was hosting. Right. So I was making a, an, a, a stage for other people to perform, but not performing myself. I really went off performing. I just, mm. I just, oh no, I've had enough of that. I don't really want to do it anymore. I don't know. Do you, can I take you back? Do you remember the first time you, uh, you took on a drag king persona as a host or a door person. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the first time you did it? I'm just interested to know, you know, what that decision was to go, actually, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give well, myself a I think there was a, I think it's because there was a drag king night, which I didn't organize, but I went to. So then there were lots of other young lesbians thinking, oh, you know, should we give this a go? So I think it was more of a, a community event. You know, we're all like sticking out moustaches on <laughs> penciling in our eyebrows so yeah that was it was something it was called naive and it was in madame jojo's amazingly you know thinking about however that happened but yeah I, i've never stepped into drag and I, my question is what does it feel like when you put the facial hair on what what does it feel like it feels great it feels really you you see yourself transform and the best bit of drag for me is then, you know, if I'm going to a gig or an event or whatever in drag and then I get called, sir. I mean, I get called sir anyway, but I get called sir all the time then. And I just think, yes, <laughs> cracked it. Mm. But I spent a lot of time just looking at men's faces, you know, like some kind yeah. of crazy psycho on the tube. <laughs> just like, okay, so what? So that hair goes there. Okay. Uh. So their eyebrows do that or their eyes are more gray. It was, yeah, I've, got very interested in men's faces just to see how that all fitted together really and that's fantastic that feeling of success yes if, if you're <laughs> you've achieved it <laughs> and what goes with yes being a a sir what is that oh it's the feeling that you've 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 deceived them because yeah. you know it's bad it's when you're being called sir and you're not trying then it's quite rude but when you're being called sir and you are, then it's a compliment. <laughs> yeah. I, I really like that. That idea of, well, you've, you've got the secret then. You're a, you've got the power in the sense, yeah. haven't you? Absolutely, yeah. We saw you doing a show which really built on your own story, which really kind of excavated your story. <clears throat> what was, was that the first show that you'd done that, that explored your own story? Yep. First show I'd ever done. Was it oh. the first full show, full solo show for you? Yeah. So where did that idea come from? And what was that process like for you of, of um, how to decide which bits of your story you, you wanted to share and, and, and why? Wow, that's a huge question. I mean, the, mm. the, the story came about because somebody commissioned me to write a piece about the Black Widows, which was the motorbike gang, the lesbian motorbike gang that we loads of us were in in the late 80s when I came back to London. 
And because I'm a musician, I did it with song. So I picked the songs from that era that were popular mm. and then mm. I strung them together and I thought, okay, I put some narrative in. I mean, I've never done it before, but I just thought, well, that looks like that'll work. And I did that and it did work. And then, so I took it from that space of being commissioned and then did it at a festival just as a, a segment. No, that's not true. I took that piece and I did it at another event and somebody came up to me and said, oh, is that a whole show? And, you know, you're in the business of saying yes. So I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, oh, good, because then come and do it at this festival. And so then I was like, oh, now I better write the rest of it then. <laughs> <laughs> so then I put on the beginning and the end and then I showed Susie and then she, through Susie, she said, oh, Barbara has to see this. And then I had a director, which, you know, was just like amazing out of nowhere. Suddenly I've got someone that's going to shape it and edit and, and make it make it that I can actually show it to other people, you know, the entire show. And it was the way I made it was through song. So I picked the songs I wanted to use and that right. kind of molded how the whole show was going to come together. And the songs were then about different parts of your life. They took us through... Yeah. eras of your life yeah I mean they, they were songs from that era and what I was doing when that song was on I, I think it's the best way to describe it so you talked about um you know some of the the harder elements of um uh, of both growing up and leaving home and then um you know around drug addiction as you were working on a show which was going to you know really bring up your story whether did you feel there's places I don't want to go and there's places I do want to go? Well, yes and no. I mean, the thing is, Barbara was very much a director was like, well, we have to look at those difficult bits because that's what's interesting. You know, like a tabloid journalist. <laughs> <laughs> Your director was like a tabloid journalist. <laughs> and she really brought those bits out. And that's, you know, but that was then so healing. And, and it made me realise that if I shared those things, that would be healing for other people. And so that was then, that formed, that formed a real backbone of the show, mm -hmm. talking about those things. In amongst all the singing and dancing and having a go lovely time, you know. And and what kind of response did the show get? You know, both in terms of the the kind of the the razzmatazz entertainment value of it, but also going to the darker places. What do you remember about what people would say? Well, interestingly, only only in the last month, month or so ago, I got out of the blue just a random email just saying, oh, I was watching It's a Sin and it made me think about, you know, our lives back then and I just want to thank you for your story, your show. I saw it at Elfest, you know, two years ago and it really stayed with me. And those are the magic moments that you have no idea how it's going to affect people. And I know other people contacted the organisation One in Four that I spoke about that, you know, deals with child sexual abuse. And, and so just, you know, if only one person did that, that's everything. Mm. But I'm sure that more than one person did that. So, uh, you know, it was, it was, yeah, it was a, a huge, I won't say the word responsibility, but it was a huge, um, it, was so, it was very rewarding mm. to get that feedback. Apart from all the razzmatazz, you know, it was up for awards and everything else. But, yeah, just that personal feedback, that's what made it 
so special. Yeah, and that's I mean, and that's really interesting. I know watching It's a Sin, it absolutely took me back to that time and where I was, you know, I was making lots of theatre at Oval House and was, you know, oh, around right. companies like, you know, Gay Sweatshop and Hot Peaches at that time. So just, you know, it was like going in a time machine. Mm. So, um, you know, it's re really effective at taking us back there. But I think the importance of somebody connecting their, that piece of television, taking them back to your performance and the kind of, um, well, that one-to-one -one relationship really yeah. that a performer has with somebody in the audience. You know, there's this kind of direct communication that can happen. And you just don't know where that ripple will go. When somebody is moved by something in the theatre, it can, it, you know, it will come back round many years later. Exactly. And that's the whole thing with the Rebel Dyke. You know, my show was Rebel Dyke and the Rebel Dyke film is now coming out. So, yeah, it's actually being at the BFI uh, next week. Opens on the 17th. So, yeah. So, you know, and I did that. I did my show as part of that whole Rebel Dyke umbrella, if you like, because obviously they're my friends. And um, so, yeah. It's a whole uh, movement, the whole Rebel Diet movement, and it's put us all back in touch with each other, and it's given us all this kind of shared, shared memories, which is just beautiful, really. Mm. Yeah, and it's the finding of that community again. Yeah, and it's lovely because we're all, you know, a bit old, a lot older, and so some women do tend to get quite isolated as they get older. You know, life can't always be all fun and games, and especially if you're not living in a big city. So just that being able to feel connected, I think, has been really vital for a lot of a lot of us. So that's been amazing. So has that been happening all through, you know, these pandemic times? Absolutely, yes. We've been having watch parties, film nights. Yeah, and of course, you know, we're all on Zoom and what have you. But yeah, the whole Rebel Dyke thing has still been connecting up. It's been lovely. Mm, great. What, what I thought... Um, if I think back to the night that we came to see your piece, it was a really mixed audience, I would say, really diverse audience. And, and you've talked about reconnecting with a community who perhaps lived through a lot of those things. Um, and yet the audience that was there who were loving it were young, some of them, I would say in their early 20s, um, very, very diverse in, in, in some ways. Um, and what am I saying? I think that it was your piece was really powerful because when you take us into um, the specificity of your lived experience, it doesn't just stay um, specific and focused and limited to that. I then make my own connections with growing up through the 80s, um, punk, uh, new romantics, whatever mm. came after it, London life, going clubbing. I find my own points of connection, which are not the same as your community, but they're mine. And so they connect me to your story. And that's what's so lovely, isn't it? That's what watching any piece should do, is make you think about where you fit in. So I'm very Absolutely. glad it did that. Thank you. Oh, totally. And and I'm not surprised that, you know, that people have, have um, watched It's a Sin and kind of come back to talk to you because, um, and I, I think it did the same for me. I think I was reminded of bits of your story that took place mm. in the same era um, that we all lived through in London. 
this is about using your story. It's, you know, we, we've made work using our own stories and we can resist sharing our own story. I've, I, I've, I've sensed you, you, you kind of touched on that almost. What do I want to share? Controlling your own story. Um, and also kind of who cares? It can be like, who cares about what happened to me? I care. And actually to have reflected back that it, it moves people and makes them connect to their own story can be very powerful, as you've said. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the story that you want to tell next? What, uh, what feels important for you now? What story? Well, it's the difficult second album. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, but Barbara and I have been, well, I'm in a writing group and we've been working on an idea around doing something as to how I became a drag king and something about drag kings. That's, that's I think, the next, the next part of why drag kings went out of fashion and what's that about living in a patriarchy and why are drag queens so much more successful than drag kings? Mm. Feels like there's a whole new um, perspective with drag, isn't there? That it's not just um, female impersonation. Uh, even the, the men who are uh, stepping into drag now, they're not just stepping into women's clothes and women's archetypes. They're, drag seems to be a, a much broader kind of term now. Is, is that how you see it? Oh, thank goodness. Because, you know, drag was horribly misogynistic for quite yeah. a long time. It was a vile, a vile art form. And now it's becoming something much, much bigger and much broader brushstroke. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost like a new type of performance art, isn't it? Yeah, because it's so diverse. And that's mm. what, is, what is so strange about it. It is really diverse. But then why aren't drag kings as important and interesting and featured? And so that's, that's what we're working on now is getting us more. Although, of course, once it's in the mainstream, I probably won't want to do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, and now the truth. Isn't that interesting, though? So, 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 just not not to go down a, a too too deep a rabbit hole, but that idea of being on the kind of fringes, being the the, the rebel, how how important? Uh, if we go back to where we started, which was how you identified yourself at the beginning, rebel wasn't one of the words, I don't think. But how important is that in your identity? I always question authority, and that is my identity. So, that that's it. <laughs> That's your motto. That's your motto. Question authority. Yeah. Yeah, and the, and, and the next thing is the founding of the lesbian camper van tribe. And <laughs> we've got one. It's called Van Dykes. Ta da! <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> Stupid. We didn't think of that. Yeah. How Silly us. <laughs> Love it. I think that might be a good place to um to tell to it. It was lovely. You took us to so many different places like i could i could see it was really well thank you i really appreciate all the prompts so yeah no not at all i mean that was what was great i didn't know that i was going to go to greenham and i went to greenham (laughs) you know seriously Uh, and and that's why it's wonderful to to be able to have a conversation like this karen so appreciate your time good i appreciate you too as well thank you very much have a lovely day you too